Hello and welcome to Million Dollar Monday. I'm your host, Greg Mazzello, bringing you real successful people with real useful advice for people with big dreams. I understand big dreams. I turned an investment of $200 and a lot of great advice from some really successful people into my big dream, Proforma, that today is a half billion dollar company. Well, hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by a fascinating guy who has really taken the entrepreneurial journey to several different levels and into several different areas. And uh, I'm going to just let him tell his story about how he got into the tanning bed business, the tanning oil business, the infomercial business, and today the Nectar Juice Bar business with a business approaching 200 locations with another almost 100 in development and over $110 million in sales. Welcome, Steve Schultz. Steve, thanks for joining me. Hey, great, great to be here, and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So, for a while, while you were you were uh, starting the first suntan uh, bed location, you kept your job, and you were sort of straddling both, getting the the business up and running and keeping your job. I, I did, and a lot of times, even in the, the nectar business, we've had so many people, which it ends up working out quite well. But a lot of times, they'll start the start the business and then quit their job immediately. Um, I'm not so sure that's the most prudent advice in the world. So I yeah. think you've got to help grow your business first and be some, have some confidence and proof. So Right, right, right. All right. So you see an ad for a tanning bed. You turn that into a tanning bed business with a couple of locations. What came next? Um, to me, the barrier event, you know, within the first year, I was the first one, either first or second one in Newport Beach. By the end of the first year, I think there were nine uh, prices plummeted, uh, guest counts plummeted, uh, but there were still just as many or more people tanning. Um, and at that particular time, there wasn't a sun tanning lotion made specifically for sun tanning beds. You know, people were still using copper tone, and I won't go into the boring details of how it clouds the acrylic, but there was a reason. I was basically trying to solve a problem, which was uh, uh, not having sun tan owners having to you know, replace the acrylic that often. I contracted out with a uh, with a chemist. We developed a dry oil that provided sheen and reflection and uh, sold the salons to fund that business. And uh, within about nine months, I think we we're in about, about 10,000 salons nationwide, give or take. Amazing. Amazing. Is that product just still out there in the business? Now, it finally, the... It, it lasted probably another five or six years. And mm-hmm. like anything, it became a big business and some of the big manufacturers came in, you know, similar to how the outdoor suntan world happens with copper tone and such. It's a, you know, a different, unless you really have those deep pockets to maintain it, it uh, it's very problematic. Okay. So the tanning bed business got commoditized, drove down exactly. pricing and profits. How'd you get into the infomercial space? I think that's what came next for you. Uh, the, you know, after selling a couple of these businesses, um, uh, Franklin Covey, I don't know if you know Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits and all that kind of stuff. Of and course. Franklin, yeah, yeah, Franklin yeah, Planner. Yeah, they invited stuff. me to do some public speaking uh, for a while. And I did that for about a year, year and a half. Um, and not long after, I ended up being in Palm Springs and was going to play golf at uh, Indian Wells and was looking for a group to play with. And somebody put me in a group with Greg Ranker, who was 
you know, half the, the principle of Guthy Ranker from Proactive and Tony Robbins and most successful commercials you see out there. And he said, hey, I find your story interesting. You know, if you see some products out there that are of interest, why don't we go ahead and do a joint venture and we'll go ahead and fund it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll do it 50-50. Um, and so uh, one thing led to another. And, and this is, I think, somewhat interesting. So we did that for a number of years and mm-hmm. proved to be quite successful. Yet uh, then they got to the point where they, it, it was really became an annuity company in the sense of you buy proactive, you get month after month after month you know, uh, or Tony Rod, whatever the product, beauty products are, right? And so he said, hey, Steve, we've turned into an annuity company. Um, and we do have some one-off products, but we're looking for shows that do X numbers. And so I was sitting in Bill, and I, I happened to be sitting in Bill Guthy's office. And I said, how many shows, for each show you produce, how many are successful? And he said, about one in 10. And we consider a successful show $100 million in sales or more. And I said, uh, so... I had pitched an idea, but he thought the CNN was about $30 million. And I said, so what do you do with all these, you know, shows that you don't like that aren't successful? Because we just put them up on the shelf and we're done with them. And I said, tell you what, how about this? I said, what if I go ahead and get a first look at them? So the shows that you think are, you know, not very good, that might do $30 million. I said, I don't have much overhead. It's just me and, you know, my office and team and whatnot. I said, if you give me first look at those shows, I'll pay you a 7% royalty on it. So maybe you get some of your investment back. I'll buy the products and move forward. And so for the next uh, number of years, when they had a show that they didn't like, they'd send it to me. I'd maybe have somebody make a few edits on it if I liked the show, and then we put it on. And so therefore I had a you know a million dollar show that didn't cost me anything. And sometimes they're very successful. Sometimes, you know, they were right and it wasn't successful at all. <laughs> at all so. I love the idea, though, of trying to turn somebody else's discards into a successful business yourself was brilliant. But anyhow, at the end of the day, um, that kind of wound down. What next? I think one of the things you decided to do was a cleanse. Yes. And that whole cleansing experience, eventually, you started cleansing without any idea it was going to turn into a business, but somehow along the way, it turned into a business. Tell us how that evolved from just kind of cleansing while you were in a pause mode, looking for your next opportunity and how you found that opportunity through cleansing. The, I, there's a company out of New York selling cleanses and uh, I ordered one and I tried it. And sure enough, I lost weight. I felt good. I had all this energy and, and I sort of had a pulse on the market and people and trends. And I said, Hey, this, you know, this has got some legs. And so I wanted to produce, I thought it would just be a huge success on it with an infomercial, but the problem that I had was, you know, 20, uh, 18, 20 bottles of juice uh, is very heavy. And when we did test shipments to New York, it was, you know, $100 to ship. And then if it sits outside, it, uh, you know, just doesn't last. And so I, I was stuck. I couldn't really, um, you know, I couldn't, it, was, it wasn't a viable infomercial. So I was, but I was still passionate about the idea and the product. So then what happened, I was right down the street. There was a, uh, uh, a natural grocer called uh, uh, Mother's Market. And I was going in there every day to grab a juice for most days anyway. And, uh, you know, a couple of things uh, crossed my mind when I was going in. One is I started asking the guys behind the counter because there's always busy and always the line. And it was, you know, how many people you're serving a day? And they said, oh, we're serving, you know, two, three hundred people a day, two, three hundred people a day, two, three hundred people. I'm like, Jesus, that's a lot of people. Oh, same time, Jesus, I'm like, ah, oh. and, and some of the stuff you're having, you're choking down. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't like carrot juice just straight. It's just this, um, but people are drinking it. Yeah. 
And so, uh, but mother subsequently moved about three blocks out the market. And I said to myself, you know, God, God forbid I drive another three blocks. You know how that is. It gets out of my routine and how I drive and whatever. And at the same time, again, going back to the, uh, you know, going back to some of the prior businesses, meaning the suntan business, what I was trying to do is solve a problem with the acrylic. Um, with this, you know, I started then looking at the legacy brands, the Jamba Juices of the world and such. And they frankly had become and still are, you know, sort of glorified, you know, Dairy Queens. You know, the sugar counts, I was working out and I was going to Jamba afterwards. And after three months, I hadn't lost any weight. I looked at the nutritional panel and sure enough, I was having more sugar and more calories than my workout was burning. <laughs> so I was actually gaining weight while I was working out. And so to me, the space uh, was ripe for, to be reinvented. And so what I wanted to do is disrupt the space. And when I was going to Mother's, what I found out was, now what, what I, I didn't find out, I just thought this on my own, is that the carrot juice didn't taste very good. Now, what if we could make juices that tasted good, that were affordable, that were accessible, uh, that people enjoyed? And simultaneously, by having the cleanse, I then have almost a built-in catering aspect of it, of a high end, you know, sell it for 100, 150 bucks. Okay. So I was like, hey, we sell two or 300 juices at you know five bucks a day. We sell a handful of you know cleanses, whatever. Uh, as things turned out, about three blocks down the street, there was an old uh, Starbucks uh, location from the early days of when uh, Howard Schultz had that third place, you know. Mm-hmm. And at that time, people were, you know, had their laptops, their hardback books and newspapers and all that energy. That, and I remember going there. The space had been uh, vacated and Starbucks had moved down the street to a drive through And I said to myself, hey, what if I go ahead and try and reinvent the juice space similar to Starbucks reinventing the coffee experience and might as well go ahead and do it at the same place Starbucks did. So I called the landlord up and signed the lease uh, August 5th and opened for business uh, October 10th, 2010. And, you know, here we are with, uh, you know, and there was never an intent, frankly, with, I think it was about $50,000 to open. And there was never an intent of a second or a third or a fourth location. But, you know, fast forward to today and, you know, we're bearing down on you know nearly a couple hundred locations and hundred million bucks in revenue. And so things turned out okay. When, when did you start franchising the business? Um, so this is a, this is a, uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm very opinionated on this topic. Um, you and I have seen a million franchises out there. We see press releases. We see, you know, uh, 100, 200, 300 stores. Ironically, I was reading Nation's Restaurant News and a new food concept came out. They have yet to open, yet they've signed 150 franchises. And so for us, yeah. we opened in 2010. Uh, we had about 11 or 12 locations in 2012. We got, we had received probably, you know, three to five inquiries, you know, a day right. from the day we opened. Um, so I probably could have sold a ton of franchises, made several million dollars, but I'd be bankrupt today and back at, back at work, so to speak. Right. And so, but my idea was, all right, we got 2012. Do we franchise? I was worried about whether franchisees could carry the brand standards, you know, uh, whether they could carry the culture, how they would represent Nectar, how we would support yep. them. And so uh, while I was getting a lot of pressure to franchise, I said, tell you what we're going to do. I'll award six franchises and then I'm going to sit on it for two years. I'm not going to award a single other franchise regardless. That's just, that's my compromise, which we did. And I thought during that time, I thought it was incumbent upon us to do a few things. One was learn what the relationship was about. It was a very iterative relationship, what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong, how we can you know, serve the franchisee. Secondly, I thought proof of concept was very important in the sense of huge. We, yeah. we went to different 
climates such as you know Denver and Houston and Dallas and mm-hmm. uh, you know all over the place. Uh, and my point to that is is that you know just like to say that uh, that food concept I mentioned a second ago, where a lot of concepts out there have you know zero one locations. The way I looked at it is you know people are paying me a royalty and they're buying a basically they're reducing the risk by buying a proven system, right? If I don't even have my store open or only have one store, what the hell can I learn to share? Yes, to absolutely. really earn that money. And it absolutely. drives me crazy when I see these people that have, you know, uh, you know, none, one or very few locations. And so for us, we sat on for two years. It was a very good uh, relationship. Sales actually were ever better represented by the franchise partners. And uh, then in 14, we set up the systems and started uh, releasing franchises in late 14, early 15. I respect that a lot, Steve. And, and, and you and I are bothered by the same thing. It bothers me to see people come up with an idea and sometimes even try to franchise it before they have a location, almost looking to franchise owners and franchising as their venture capital. And that's just wrong. People are looking to franchising for a proven concept, proven operations and proven methodology. And you did it right. You, you prove things out. You slowly experimented with franchising and, and you know what, you're being rewarded for it now uh, in spades with your success. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that in the sense that it was a it was a smart decision I made. Um, and I'm not saying that by myself on the background like that. I just think that, you know, the more that we learn, the more that we can share with the franchisees. So there's very little, you know, we still own a lot of locations. Um, and there is there's very little that we haven't been through. And one other thing that I'll say about franchise that I find fascinating, going back to using it as their you know financial, you know, going back right. to their funding, their private equity, so to speak, is that you know, there's two ways to grow, you know, basically a speed to market, you know, or a centric model. And I chose a centric model. What I mean by that is I put three in Orange County, three in San Diego, three in Scottsdale. And my opinion was, I wanted to have, see how they did. If they did well, then I wanted to infill the areas as quick as I could so that I could then own that area and keep basically competitors out. Yep. And, and, and I, re- and I refused, I had inquiries from, you know, from, uh, you could imagine from the Midwest to the East coast, yep. all over the place. Um, and I see other brands that, uh, you know, even in our space, all of a sudden they have one location in Boise, one in Denver, one in Phoenix, one in Southern California and from a franchisor's perspective. Could you imagine the cost for me to fly up, not me or my team to fly up there just to one location, the brand awareness, the supply chain is crazy. Yeah. Fred DeLuca, the guy that started subway, uh, God rest his soul. He's passed from some time ago. He, he said, Similarly, that uh, they would put in a subway and then um, he would say that the subway was actually a training experience. People would come in, they'd learn how to stand over here and then walk through the line and then get whatever the things were you wanted, then get to the end and then pay. And he said those were just training centers for customers, customer training centers that eventually enabled him to continue to expand in that market. We all know what's happened to Subway today, but uh, anyhow, it was all genius at the time. And I think what you're doing is right. Having multiple units in a geographical area make a lot of sense for a whole bunch of reasons, marketing-wise and uh, attention-wise, et cetera. So, all right, share with our customers one or two of the biggest mistakes you've made and what lessons you learned from them. And then we'll close out with a couple of the biggest successes and the lessons from those successes? You know, 
yeah, a couple of things. One is I think that, you know, life is about solving problems. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, and I've always looked at solving problems as a challenge. It's never intimidated me. I've actually enjoyed problems because I like reading, you know, mysteries and watching the you know, British series and things like that, trying to figure it out. And I think that's how, how life is, whether it be a relationship, meaning personal relationship or a business. And right. when I looked at Nectar, what I looked at was I saw an industry that had gone wayward, had gone sideways, uh, that they had, you know, basically started on that slippery slope. But next thing you know, it was all sugars and fillers. And I said, hey, yeah. that industry needs to be fixed. Um, now, when I went to fix it, going back to one of these lessons is that, you know, in life, too many people listen to other people's opinions and that white noise, you know, <laughs> I go home with this great idea about this, the, the juice thing. And yeah. as you can imagine, everybody, it's a fad, crazy, yeah, stupid, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever right, yeah. it is. And so, yeah, uh, you know, whether it be that, which I told you earlier, the suntan business, you know, was the same thing. You know, what are you, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing it? So I think people have to really uh, be very disciplined to block out the white noise. If they believe an idea, if they have the, you know, intestinal fortitude to do it, the perseverance to do it, stick to it, keep going. Uh, if you fail, so what? You know, pick, I mean, I've failed probably more. I'm sure I've still a lot more than I've been successful. So um uh, but never stopped me and it never crossed my mind that I would ever, ever you know, long-term, I'd never fail. I never got down when I, when I company lost money or I screwed up, I just got back up and started again. Amen. So, yeah. All right. So not listening to others uh, is really wise advice for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, some people have no clue what they're talking about. Uh, some people don't even wish other people well, like some people I tell, I tell uh, some people when I talk, you know, be careful when you listen to naysayers, because some people like your next door neighbor, they might not want to see you be uncomfortable because if you pull in the driveway with a big new Mercedes, that might just challenge them. And so you have to be really careful about who's giving you advice and who's giving you feedback, because sometimes it could be for all the wrong reasons. Share your biggest success and the biggest lesson that you want to share with our listeners. Well, you know, determine what, what you mean by success. I think that the, the, you know, Nectar clearly has been, you know, for me anyway, the, you know, the base, biggest success to so take it from, you know, a yep. little $50,000 investment to, you know, a hundred million dollar company. Um, I think, you know, was, uh, is, I mean, I never look back on it and say, oh, that's, yep. that's good. And, and I'm not resting for it. Uh, and, as far as our goal, our goal is to be the first you know, billion dollar brand in this space. Um, and we've got a lot of new product and new categories and companies that we're starting that will, I think, assist in, uh, insist in getting that. I think that, you know, obviously you hear the stories about, uh, you know, people doing it for the wrong reasons, which is money. You know, people do something for money. And, and I think the problem with that is that, meaning that when I give the advice, hey, don't do it for money, they say, oh, it's easy for you to say because you have money or it's, you know, but it really <laughs> is true because it, it you know, money is not a tangible thing. You know, it's, uh, you lose the passion for it. You just, you like what it buys, but you know, are you going to give up your Friday night and your weekends and whatever, if it's money related, when I started Nectar and even to this day, 10 years, I've never crossed my mind. If I've got to go in at seven or eight o'clock in the morning and buy coconut water or work the register, I look at it as a, you know, as my part of you know who I am, part of life. And so I think that, uh, which goes back to the last thing I'll say, which goes back to the passion and the passion. I think people have to reevaluate, you know, how they interpret that 
uh, you know, that term and uh, that passion question, because it's not necessarily I'm passionate about X or Y or Z, it's more passionate about the process and stuff. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think, Steve, part of the lesson is when people aren't passionate about something, not only are they not necessarily willing to go in at seven o'clock at night or whatever it takes if, if it has to happen, but I think you and I share a lot of the same philosophies. I think about things morning, noon, and night because I'm passionate about it and I'm ever increasingly want to learn more and improve more. And in that passion, forever learning and ever improving continues to build a business. Steve, it's been a lot of fun spending time with you. I have no doubt you're going to reach that billion dollar goal and more. Thanks for your time. Hey, appreciate it. It's been a joy and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon.